Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host, Mike W. Come on, chat. Let me put in the link for the next topic. There we go. Thank you. Thank you, YouTube. And that's the one time I'll say that this year. Huh. It's just amazing because, like, the vast majority of our listening base will not ever see any of this unless they do it themselves because you're just not going to see it from the AI ever. It's not going to happen. So. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, Dan, most of our listener base listens to the post-produced version, so you're commenting on the links in YouTube is completely irrelevant. Oh, well, yeah. that's, that's also true. <laughs> you mean well. the things Dan edits out for the edited version anyway, so they'll never hear about this? Oh, welcome to Polycast 307. I'm still Michael Lewis, and with me as usual is Dan Quick. Sleuthing for a patch. The me and team. Using only the finest and most upstanding of strategies. Make a Bears fan. Still struggling to think of witty intros. <laughs> and our guest co-host today, Mike W. Same. We could already be out having margarita time and tacos, but no podcasts first. <laughs> Work before play, Mackie. Work before play. Aww. I have to do that <laughs> the rest of the time, though. I've had a hard week. Are you saying it's been a hard day's night? It's, it's, it's just been a hard day, night, and everything. You try not having air conditioning in Texas when it starts getting warmer. Mm-hmm. I've tried it in Florida. I'm sure it's pretty similar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you have to pay the people out. Yeah. But at least it's a miserable heat. <laughs> but wait, is this supposed to help? A clue without, I think, is how that's supposed to be pronounced. Are coastal cities less defensible? So the post is apparently asserting that coastal cities are less defensible, but then the poster goes on to several reasons why they're, I guess, maybe more defensible. Although reading through these, I'm not sure that that really makes a difference, whether it's a coastal city or not. Like he says that you can park naval units in the city. And I'm like, yeah, well, you can do that with land units too. So I'm not quite sure what the difference is here. I guess the one thing that that is a benefit for coastal cities is that you can park your land ranged unit and your naval ranged unit in the city and get three bombards with a wall instead of just two, which can certainly help. Well, if you add the encampment, you now have four. Right. Although the encampment is going to probably be, unless you build it right on the coast, inland and less able to hit the attacking ships. But Yeah, that's going to depend on where you place it. And I guess the one thing that makes a big difference with any naval engagement is the lack of water terrain. If you build a city on the coast, you can't build one hills in the water that you can nestle your city in between and then use that as defensive tiles for all your units. It's all just flat water. The reefs don't provide defensive much, bonuses, do they? No. How much water, though? Because, like, you can make a coastal city that's only got two coastal tiles and only two range ships are going to be able to shoot at it. In which case, this is a pretty big difference from that in, like, one where you have, say, four or five exposed hexes yeah. to water and a big navy could really pressure it. Right. Yeah. yeah it's all going to depend on the map. Yeah, because I've had plenty of AI cities where there's just a two-tile canal in front of it because it's just like one by one. You can only line up two frigates in there to try and hit things. 
So they're not necessarily that undefensible. I mean, if you stick it out on a peninsula and it's surrounded by water, you might have some trouble. Or on an I think it depends on the era, too, because yeah. depending on era, the strength of boats relative to cities can change. And of yeah, course, really- right at the start of the game, if you're getting warrior rushed, you can't even besiege a city that's sufficiently coastal. There's no way to do it. You can't put zone of control around it. So that city's always going to heal no matter what you do. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess if the other player galley rushes you and you have a capital that's very exposed to the water, that could be a problem because you have to make that extra investment in building the naval units to stop them. There's opportunity costs and stuff like that. <laughs> they have uh, to build the galleys and get them to you, though. We're talking like less than one in 100, maybe less than one in 500 so games. Oh, yeah. See this. yeah. But I mean, it happens. You know, especially with the div like Norway or something like that, that's got the unique early naval units. But yeah, getting invaded from the sea is probably something you don't even have to worry about until like the industrial era, mostly. Frigates frigates can hurt you a lot, but before that, it's iffy. Minus 50% penalty for range units doesn't apply to the naval units because they have to bombard automatically. Yeah. That plus, Jason, you mentioned no hills in the water. So if you are being invaded on a coast, and the ships are there, they've got no defensive bonuses sitting in the ocean or the coastal water. If you're able to bombard, then you go ahead and bombard. Plus, the other thing I think about is when we talk about coastal cities, I'm assuming, yes, that we are thinking of cities that are actually settled on the water, because we're not talking about those cities that have access to water from a harbor, but are inland, even though uh, they have yeah. access to the coast. So that that would to yeah. me be a city with coastal access, as opposed to a coastal city, which, of course, is a new concept that we have in Civ, thanks to Civilization VI. Right. And of course, if you've got your city one hex off the coast and the coast is all cliffs, I mean, that's city is basically impenetrable from water. Well, if it's only one hex inland, though, you can still bombard with frigates and land units to the side of the cliffs. And I don't think I've actually seen a one tile inland city where it was entirely cliffs along there. There's at least one or two tiles like to the side of the cliffs that were flat and you could shoot at the city. So (laughs) don't forget about that melee promotion that pretty much no one ever takes normally. Well, well amphibious? you never to know. Get to the next one. No, there's one that specifically oh, allows oh, you to scale cliffs. Scale. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, people almost never go that path because amphibious is more useful in almost every case. But, well, here's one where it wouldn't be. <laughs> one game in a million. Yep. The rule change with the districts that allows you to build, quote, coastal cities inland via the districts definitely does change the dynamic with coastal cities. Because if you don't want to risk them being exposed to naval units you don't have to build it inland and build your harbor and you know i mean okay they can pillage your harbor but those uh naval units aren't getting to your city they've got to disembark and that takes extra time and slows them down and in the meantime you're just bombarding them yeah for that it really is industrial if you got a city inland like that yeah Um, because battleships or things with three range are going to still threaten but Right. That's really but then that's game. with artillery, which is three range as well, right? Yeah, the battleships are going to dominate that because you're going to be able to throw a lot of them in there, rotate them in and out freely due to their speed. Anything that gets into their range is going to get completely devastated. Uh, yeah, they are strong. Even somewhat comparable era. And the city itself is going to get its walls blown out pretty quickly against that. Yeah, I think I've seen it take like, what, two, maybe three turns to knock out a city wall with a battleship, just a single battleship, let alone yeah. if you've got like a fleet or an armada of them. Yeah couple of them and you're either going to need navy or really high air power nukes or something it's just going to block that with a city in a unit or two 
Buzzing says in the chat, I really wish we had some kind of weather terrain on the oceans that moves slowly over turns. I think it's good the way it is that we don't have these defensive modifiers in the ocean. I think the bigger issue when it comes up in the thread is that if you're talking single player versus multiplayer, it does seem like coastal cities are in fact more defensible because the AI in Civilization VI and its ability to handle naval combat is not as good as it is with land combat, and that's I'm not saying land combat is also good with the AI, I'm just saying it's better. But in multiplayer, man, if you've got a multiplayer person that really knows their stuff, mm-hmm. it is possible that it could be less defensible, but that has to do with more of the player as opposed to the mechanics of the game. So I think everything that we've talked about here, really besides making it more situational, I think that, in fact, coastal cities are generally more defensible because the people who are trying to take your coastal cities do not have any defensive modifiers for when you're trying to bombard them or attack them to get rid of them from your shores. Right, but it goes the other way around, too, which is that you don't have very many defensive modifiers. So if you've got your fleet trying to stand between your city and their fleet, and they've got a bigger, better fleet, your fleet is going to get crushed because you can't build forts in the water and you don't have hills to stand on. Although you both have to invest in a fleet or right. if you both don't, if you got a city that's like one off or in a harbor choke, it's just not a big deal. And it's straight up more defensible. Right. It really is dependent on the terrain near the city. Yeah. It matters so much. And as bad as the AI is with uh, naval units, my experience has been they're even worse with uh, air units. So when you get to the point in the game, if you oh, get well. to the point in the game where <laughs> aircraft carriers become the dominant God. force on the water, then you know you just plant a couple planes in your coastal city, and you know you're just gonna knock out all the AI stuff. I mean, that's effectively just extra ranged attacks, and the AI isn't gonna have anything to defend against that because they're just terrible at using planes. Well, planes have been breaking, arguably since Civ 4, but definitely since Civ 5, because of the stacking setup and the ability to bypass this to a large extent with planes. You can stack so many units and so much damage per area that really only nukes are comparable throughout the game. So if you have a somewhat water-heavy map, you can just dump plane after plane after plane on anything. And I don't think there's a lot in the game that can hold up against contemporary planes that way. Even Sam's would get overwhelmed. So long as you properly defend those carriers and those have airplanes on them, then that could actually make your coastal city even more defensible if you're worried about being invaded that way. The planes hit ships, too, just fine. Park the aircraft carrier in the city and have even more planes effectively in the city. A bombard unit or two or something or a melee unit sitting in front of the city. Oh, that's kind of your alert system that, oh, I'm being attacked. They're going to try to take the city. (laughs) It is kind of one of those things where typically, depending upon where your city is located, as was talked about being on a peninsula, think about the number of times on a single turn a melee unit could attack the city to try to take it and compare that to most of your land cities in the game. And for that reason, even that reason alone, I think that's pretty significant, which we've kind of danced around, but I don't think we exactly said it. In that way, your coastal cities are, in fact, more defensible. But don't get beat at sea. (laughs) That would generally be preferred. It's suggested from Scaramanga that if there's a military emergency, reveal the target cities. Multiplayer game. I was Gorgo. Indonesia and Netherlands were neighbors. After I fended off Dutch archers with hoplites, Indonesia attacked Wilhelmina and captured Amsterdam. This triggered a military emergency against Indonesia, and I accepted, but the Dutch AI did not. 
Problem was, I didn't know where Amsterdam was and got bogged down at another Indonesian city when I might have gone straight for it. Should the target city and adjacent tiles be revealed, or did I just have to rely on Dutch shared visibility if they had actually accepted? And in reply, Archon Wing had said, I don't have a problem with this. You should always check to see what you're actually signing up for, and you still have X turns to find it. So to this part, to me, is on the player. I get that, that the exploration is part of the game, but to me, if you're telling me this is an emergency... I want your help. It's not me going to find you. It's you coming to me asking for assistance. If you want my help, you should show it to me. But I also admit at the same time, seeing as how the game does not show me the target city, if I already don't know where it is, then I'm probably going to say no. And I should say no, if for no other reason that (laughs) often if you're dealing with the AI, you're going to be the one, even if the AI had it accepted, Scarmanga, you know you're probably going to be the only one that's actively doing anything. And if you say no and they say no, then the emergency is not accepted, and therefore, after the X number of turns, that AI is not going to gain the benefit of being able to hold on to the city because you didn't know where it was to begin with, let alone get enough units in position to go and take it out. Or take it back, I guess, is the way to put it. To me, the more important thing about emergencies is I would like to be able to actually talk to the other players before accepting to find out whether or not they're going to accept. That'd be nice, too, yes. And we touched on that in the last episode, I believe, yes. Yeah, and that right now is my biggest complaint with emergencies. I could see it being that it doesn't reveal the city necessarily, but it might say, you know, in the fog of war, go over here. You know, we're not going to reveal the city unless you had the shared visibility because you got another emergency target. But the emergency tells you, go into this vicinity so then you can see what that city is, its strength, its size, the land, etc. Because to me, you've come to me. If this is really such an emergency, then you should be able to point me in the direction of where the emergency is. If that doesn't actually happen, then I think that it's on the player to then decide... Mm, am I actually going to go exploring for this? And if so, then that's on you whether or not you do that or not, and you take your chances of whether or not you find the city in time and then have enough time to get units there to take it. It's already got it set up in the game to reveal cities for you when you make first contact with people. So why can't you use the same thing that when an emergency comes up, it can pop up that city? Because, I mean, there's a difference between it's a little way over here or it's halfway around the globe. I don't like the internal inconsistency, (laughs) personally. Like, I'm okay if it goes one way or the other. Either you don't get the emergency unless you've discovered the targets, or you get the target revealed. Because, like, it's kind of asinine what an emergency is supposed to represent, what you're supposed to do, and then you don't even know where it is. Uh, Like, this is a dogpile mechanic on somebody who's winning, allegedly. I know that's not how it works in practice, but (laughs) the present implementation is just nonsense. It's not internally consistent. I definitely don't feel like they should not give you the emergency if you haven't revealed the target cities, because you could end up with too many situations where if you just never got open borders and never found those cities, you would just never see emergencies. So I think I would err more towards if it's going to do one or the other, then it should show you the city. But I do want to point out that Civ 6 is a little bit more friendly with regard to uh, revealing territory through closed borders, because I think in Civ 6, your trade units now actually have visibility, which they didn't in Civ 5. And your religious units, I think, can move through closed borders. So, like, it's, it's really kind of on you to have been scouting throughout the game and finding where, very least, everybody's capitals are. There's tools to do that now, whereas there weren't necessarily in Civ Five. 
Yeah, I'm totally on board with you as the player. I mean, this is a 4X game, and one of those 4Xs is Explore. But depending upon the timing of the emergency and where and what else is going on in the world, if it's really far flung off and it's got really nothing to do with me until if and when that emergency comes around, you're telling me there's another issue in this part of the world to capture this city from this person. You're giving me all of this information. If not reveal the city, then tell me where I need to go on the map in order to reveal that. Right. So then it's also additional information for you as the player, just like Jason, as, as you said and we talked about previously, allow me the chance to conference with the other AI to see if they're thinking about joining the emergency, and then maybe there's the possibility to say, hey, I'll give you this if you join the emergency with me. <laughs> then if it tells me it's on the other side of the map, that's another piece of information for me to say, do I have units in the vicinity that I can go explore, that I can reroute? Can I build one? Can I buy one? Can I get it over there? It's just another piece of information because some buddies have come to me and said, hey, I really need your help. And you think about an emergency in real life. Hey, I really need your help with this emergency. This person is in, in dire straits. They need your assistance. Okay, I accept. Where are they? Well, you can find them now. Thanks for agreeing to and help out. Well, again, the mechanic isn't necessarily that another Civ is coming to you and asking you to help them with their emergency. It's more of just some nebulous entity in the game that's not a player decides when and where these emergencies are happening because you can have an emergency pop up and literally no players accept it. So it's not like being bribed into war or something like that in Civ Five, where one player is asking the other player to do it. It's, it's kind of a different thing. But I do agree that if you accept the emergency in principle, the game should probably tell you where the heck the emergency is actually happening. I don't think you necessarily should need to know that information before accepting or rejecting, because if, if it's way the heck well, on the other side free of the scouting, because then you could get an emergency and just decline it and be like, oh, yeah, there's that city. Right. <laughs> and then so it really it, is free. You could have a situation where as part of the decision on whether or not you're going to accept the emergency, you're thinking about, oh, I don't even know where this place is. So I probably don't want to unless I have some other really pressing reason why I might want to find out and go do it. I don't know. Maybe I can like leverage a nearby city state or something like that and send all their units over to, into the meat grinder. Mm. I get what you're saying. I still like the idea that it's, an, it's another piece of information to tell me that it's over here. I, and I realize that, okay, yes, if you reject the emergency, then you know where that city is, or you have an idea of where that city is. It hasn't lifted anything from the fog of war. It's just, okay, there's that city over there, and who knows what else is over there in terms of units and terrain and the size of the city and all of its districts and this, that, and the other thing. If it's so egregious that you need to call this, this entity calls an emergency and tells you, we got this problem and this is what's happening, then I would like to have that piece of information because I think that is a relevant piece of information for you to accept the emergency or not. This is a dogpile mechanic, though. Yeah. Like they, they should be trying to get people to go after this city. And I, I would err on the side of making the nations target this city reliably. Like, <laughs> to me, it's kind of silly that you're being asked to dogpile some city off in the fog of war or... You know, even if it's rough location, and how are you going to give that to the AI? Here, go to this rough location. They already have a mechanic for revealing cities that's not broken. Uh, in contrast to quite a number of things with the game, like that actually works. You actually just reveal the city, uh, and then it's in Fogor. I don't see the issue with, with showing this. I don't think it's going to make emergencies too strong. I don't think it's going to cause problems. And on the flip side, it will encourage at least some participation in the actual emergencies, which yeah, are kind of toothless at the moment. Well, yeah, but I mean, emergencies are already kind of flimsy, so you might as well make them a little bit stronger in regards to what they can trigger on if you're going to go this route. Although I would still like them to actually be a victory condition restraint rather than just silly nonsense. 
Well, there are always questions of if you join the emergency and someone else joins the emergency, will you remain loyal to the person that you join the emergency with after the emergency is over or even seeing the emergency through? Speaking of loyalty and cities somewhere on the map. Whatever, good enough. All right, this one's by Supremacy <laughs> King, too. He is describing a situation with uh, free cities flipping, basically, a perpetual loyalty loop, so to speak. So an AI basically forward settled later in the game, if I'm understanding correctly, and uh, he flipped it, but he didn't want it. So he uh, <laughs> let it go back to Australia. Once he rejected it the first time, it would flip to Australia, but then it would just go back to him over and over again. So it would constantly switch between Free City and Australia. And I pointed out that since he's indicating the text shows that the city will not feel pressure from his Civ anymore after he rejects it, that this is a bug because the game is doing something other than it says it's doing. So that was my comment in this thread. As of how it should work, I think it should just go back to Australia and stay with Australia. If you're not pressuring the city and nobody else is pressuring the city, Mm -hmm. then it shouldn't be flipping. Well, if it becomes independent and then tries to join another empire and that empire refuses it, shouldn't it just stay independent? Yes, but because he refused it, it went back to Australia. And at that point, it should not have been getting pressured anymore because the game told him that he would no longer apply pressure to the city. (laughs) He liberated it when he flipped it back to the original founder. Yeah, he waited for Free City, went over there and took it over, and then, here, Australia, have this back. Yeah. And at that point, you'd think it shouldn't keep flipping, doing the flip loop, but no. The minute it goes back to Australia, the loop starts all over again. That's just bugged. I'm sorry. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The game is doing something differently from what it says it will do. That's a bug. This is a bug mechanic. And the other aspect of it is like, it's a crappy location. It's why I don't want the city. So it's not that you can say, okay, fine, I'll take the city, raise (laughs) it's kind of a a humorous notion, but especially considering the game doesn't allow you to do that, and I'm not convinced that it should allow you to do that, but because it doesn't allow you to do that, then you end up, as I said, with this perpetual loyalty loop, which I don't want it because it's a crap location, although at this particular point in time, the time that you're having to deal with it flipping back, it going to you, and then it going to Australia, and it being a free city, and back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, I guess the thing to do in that situation, if it's going back to Australia, if you can get it to the point where it becomes a free city, then go and take it as a free city before it flips back to Australia, if you don't want to find yourself at war with Australia. Or whomever the Civ happens to be. And that's what he did. He actually captured it and liberated it. And yeah. that still wasn't good enough. So he would have had to burn it, I guess. But I don't know. That might still give a penalty because yeah. it was originally Australia's. I don't know if it was Mike or Ruben in a game in the past couple of weeks had this problem. Was trying to get into one Civ, but the two cities he kept taking over kept flipping back before he could get any further. So he could not get a foothold to get down further to take out the capital. That's a little different, though, because that's the design of loyalty pressure on Conquest. It's it's set up to be annoying that way. So you either have to bring enough units to simultaneous capture cities, or you just burn cities, basically, and and eat the resource cost incurred in doing so. Depending on situation, either one can work. The other part of that situation, being a bit more selective about, if you can, the order in which you capture cities. Because if it's a newer city, then I'm going to be exerting as much loyalty pressure as an older city. So if you can go and, for instance, take the capital first 
and then take a smaller city, which of course is not, not always easy to do if it's deep within its empire, then you'd be less likely to either have that loyalty pressure that it's going to flip over, or it's going to be that many more turns that, oh, I got time to go ahead and capture this next city before this city would flip back. But yeah, in this situation, this this forward settling and then this back and forth, yeah, it, it should be that you're no longer exerting pressure so that it either stays with Australia because presumably there is some loyalty pressure being applied from Australia, even though it's right up against your borders. Or if there isn't that loyalty pressure from Australia, then it would remain a free city. But as soon as you reject its advances, then that should be it. It shouldn't have to be in order to get rid of this annoyance. I got to wait for it to become a free city and then go and raise it. Because, yeah, you are going to end up with a negative diplomatic penalty, which is the player is being penalized because the AI forward settled on you and put it in a ridiculous spot. Do you also get warmonger hate for raising free cities? Yeah. Yep. I mean, plus you can, as he pointed out, you you are liberating somebody's city every time uh, if you capture it and liberate it this way. It's true. <laughs> you, you could farm, like, a ridiculous <laughs> amount of positive diplo. Yeah. yeah. If he were playing as Australia, that would be uh, a nice little... Uh, <laughs> oh! Every 10 or 20 turns, 100% production game. I mean, by and large, the loyalty mechanic's annoying, but I like what it does in terms of making players think about how they approach taking cities. So, like, it's one of those, like, negative things that's still good for the game in terms of the strategy. But they should fix the bugs, yes. <laughs> what would happen if you sold that city to another Civ? I don't know. You'd probably still flip, unless it works what properly it, that time. It again, would it go back to Australia, or, or would it go back to the Civ that you sold it to? Oh, that's a good question. I have no idea. I, I think so, they have code for original founder, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is so convoluted. Like, I've never tried crap like this. <laughs> Not even Phil tried this. Maybe someone in our listening audience knows, or would be willing to try this out and let us know in the comments to this episode, and we can report uh, on episode 308. Or, yeah. or Supremacy King can try it out if he's got a save file. It's true. That's right, Supremacy King 2, you've been called out by Jason. You need to do work. You have homework. <laughs> I will not ask this of you, but if you want to do it, then we'd be appreciative, yes. Yes, we would. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. I mean, he can send the save file to someone else, too, if someone else wants to test it, because it would be a pain in the butt to try to set that up. Oh. Right? That's, hmm. So. There's one more logical step in your uh, statement there, Jason. So Supremacy King 2, Jason has offered to take your save file <laughs> and test this out for us <laughs> and report back on the next episode. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be willing to give it a shot. There you go. <laughs> PM me on Symphonatics or something. Yeah, Supremacy King is the least you can do, seeing as how we picked the thread of yours as the topic on this show. I mean, really. Stan's pulling out the tire iron with his persuasion <laughs> skills here. <laughs> well, one way or another. Record for episode 302 with Dan Q. Makalua. The Mean Team, Mega Bears Fan, and Timothy001. So, thread started by Anonymous Feed. Things other people care about, but you don't. Like, for him, he doesn't really care about how balanced this is, or as long as they're unique, interesting, fun, it's more acceptable for them to very wildly empower. And Wendell doesn't care if they're partially silent, because they've got at least five recorded lines of dialogue. You know, it's like, he's like, eh? Eh. Some people don't like music. Some people don't care if tall is as viable as wide. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold up. <laughs> Some people don't. Some people.
all I read that and I'm like, are they serious or is it trollololololol? Because they didn't say anything else. So I'm not. <laughs> well, as someone who plays the game almost exclusively single player, the competitive balance of the different civs against each other is not as important to me as it is to a lot of other people so i can definitely understand that that position to me the balance is kind of a middle of the road thing i don't want them to be so extreme like i'm playing civilization revolution where this one particular civilization is so much more powerful in this respect right from the outset regardless of what you do or do not do in the game but i don't want them to be so similar to each other that it doesn't matter what i'm choosing otherwise it's just a color palette choice so I do care how balanced they are, but I'm not concerned with them being perfectly balanced. And I'm not concerned about them like not being balanced at all, like somewhere in the middle. And that's a very difficult thing to quantify and to put into terms. So it's not that I don't care about. I do care about, but it's not the be-all and end-all of my enjoyment of this game. Somebody else doesn't care about barbarians being a pain, Dan. You want to go tell them how they're wrong? <laughs> oh, is this LMNT? Yeah, that's just part of the game. Build units and clear the camps if they're too much of a problem. Okay, so you go ahead and you build those units. And again, this is from the online speed perspective. But still, you go ahead and you build those units in the first five, ten turns and enjoy the every three or four barbarian units you have to yours simply because you happen to spawn near a barb camp, even more so if it's near horses, and then they get the horse units and they move in. He says especially when they get horsemen early. <sighs> I agree. You build units and you clear the camps if they're too much of a problem. But when I don't have a viable opportunity in order to do that... Yeah, they ignore that argument all the time. It's annoying on the forum, but what can you do about it? Yeah, and while you're building units early on to clear all those camps, the AI is just building more settlers. I just don't like the early scout that has no counterplay, but we'll like, yes. pretend it has counterplay anyway, and that's obnoxious. I think if the barbarian outpost just did not start with that scout, I think that by itself would be a huge improvement. If they had to wait five or ten turns at least yes. in order to generate their scout, that by itself I think would make me happy. Yeah. I'd still prefer that the horses not spawn so early, but getting rid of that starting <laughs> scout would be a huge improvement. I mean, that's really all it needs to be at least decent. That's really it. Yeah, I'm not expecting if barbarians are in the game that I would even get to sit at home for 15, 20 turns and then suddenly a barbarian arrives and then it's, oh no, whatever am I to do? Then in that case, no, that would be my mistake because I know barbarians in the game. They could be somewhere. Eventually, they will start roaming to find out what else is around beside their immediate vicinity, just like I would be doing. But then it would be my mistake for not putting that in proper priority sequence based on it's a much bigger deal if I, I know I'm on, let's say, a continent's map, it's compared to an island's map, whatever. There just has to be that counterplay and a reasonable opportunity to have that counterplay because that combined with what Mackie has said is the other part of it, which is I'm spending all of this time. Whew, I spent the last 40, 50 turns. Look at my era score, guys. I'm in constant golden ages. Look at me. This is fantastic. All of your one city. Oh, that's really great. You've got really nice archers and warriors. Hey, my swordsmen and crossbowmen would like a conversation with you. Like, I, I, what the heck am I supposed to do now? Ugh. Other people in the thread, disgustipated. Time of victory. Doesn't matter to me one bit. It doesn't matter to me either, but I know people who are looking at, I mean, the Hall of Fame stuff, number one, but also people just challenging themselves to get a victory again, only to do it more quickly. I mean, I get that, but I, too, especially about the time of victory or even just whether or not I formally win. Sometimes a formal win in Civ is not rage quitting. I mean, really. Air quotes, formal win. Rage quitting is 100% value. Uh... Really, I don't care about winning the game. I simply play until I am bored. I don't care about fancy animations and 
Oh, cultural representation, quote unquote. Uh, <laughs> and somebody does also. Uh, wow, those are very uh, different. Adult, then it's a third topic. Well. That's that's um. <laughs> one of these three things is not like the others. Yeah. <laughs> In your statement, oh dear, black catatonic scenarios. Never played one. Probably never will. Yeah, uh, I know there are scenarios in Civ. I get why some people like them, but for me, when I play Civilization, I'm looking for a game that's going to be spanning the test of time, and a scenario is intended to me to be a slice of that. So it would be one thing if we were talking about a mod pack, not that I play with modification packs, but that is changing some or all of this kind of grand experience, but a scenario is just a little a little slice of time. I mean, some of them are interesting and some of the things that you can do, but it's not going to make me come back to play the game again and again. Definitely not. I played exactly one scenario in Civ 6, and that was the Australian Outback one when it first came out. Tried it once and never went back to it. Phil will like this one, although not just Phil, from Bad Wolf. DD is too hard, crying face. Oh, really? The hardest difficulty level in the game is really, really hard. Wow, who would have thought? <laughs> just go try playing the hardest difficulty level in practically any other game out there. You'll notice it's also really, really hard. Almost as if it's by design. Well. <laughs> well yeah, my complaint uh, isn't that it's too hard. It's just I don't like the way that Firaxis and Civilization have traditionally implemented the difficulty in the games. I wish they could find some way besides just stacking a bunch of early buffs onto the AIs at the very start. Because once you get past those early hurdles the rest of the game becomes pretty easy. Oh, Eliminator Senior, AI using air units. Game is already well over by then. I'd much rather have them be effective with normal units. Okay, so first off, apparently air units are abnormal. But no, if we're going to have an era in the game, if we are going to have that as part of the experience, whether you get there or not, once you get to that point, the AI should be able to use the air units. Mm, uh, First off, use air units, period. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and second of all, at least use them as well as they do other eras. Don't really care about a Hall of Fame either. I don't even understand the scoring system or pay much attention to it. Yeah, well, <laughs> join the club. <laughs> about the scoring system. Oh. They reworked the scoring system with Rise and Fall. I've noticed all the scores seem to be a lot higher now with post-Rise and Fall games than with the pre-Rise and Fall games. Well, the score before was just a joke. <laughs> I do like the Hall of Fame as a record of games that I've played through to completion. So sometimes when I'm booting up the game, I'm like, oh, what civs haven't I played with yet or haven't beaten the game with yet? And then I want to play as that civ. Granted, the Steam achievements kind of serve that same purpose now. I can always look at that. But it's also nice to see, like, what difficulty level was I on? What map type was I on? Those sorts of things. Which would be even more information than you could get from the game that you're playing. And you press the escape button and you're looking at the summary of the information in the game. That's like, so what map type are we playing? Right. Uh, uh, I, I, uh. Or the load screen when you're actually picking which save file you want to load. Yeah. Yeah, the only time Dan cares about score is in multiplayer. I knew either Mac or Fell was going to make that reference. Yeah. Uh-huh. Speaking of multiplayer, Shmilly Dana, I have never had any interest in playing any multiplayer games. Well, I am sad for you, sir or ma'am. About 10 years ago, Dan might have agreed with you. Yeah, it's true. Uh, that's also true. That's their statement today. It might not be their statement tomorrow. Hopefully, there wasn't a time when they did enjoy multiplayer gaming, and now they don't. Mm. The key thing about that, and it doesn't explain not having any interest in playing multiplayer games. I think the first question is, do you want to play the game with other people? And if so, how do you want to play the game with other people? If you're looking for competitive, you've got so many choices. 
out there between formal leagues or just going into uh, show me an internet game lobby and go for it. For a cooperative, that's finding like-minded people who like that kind of game. But it's fair to say that, yes, that there'll be some people that have no interest in playing any multiplayer games. And if you look at the percentage of people who play Civilization VI multiplayer as compared to multiplayer in any other civs, it is a minority, a notable minority, as compared to the single player. So no hard feelings there. You can still listen to the show. That's fine. Because oftentimes things that we're talking about in the game, if it's not AI-specific, it's more often than not first and foremost thinking about the single-player perspective, because that's how the majority of people play, and that is the majority of the base of the game. Oh, and uh, Cryzip says, <laughs> I-, I enjoy his things other people care about, but you don't. He says, synergy, lol. <laughs> <laughs> I approve, sir. You can definitely continue listening to the show <laughs> if you do already. Oh, but there's one for Phil that Mr. Shadows thinks the UI is pretty good as it is. The problem's not the UI. The problem's that people complain about the UI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get a trout, and I'm just going to smack this guy across the face with a fish with it, <laughs> and then I'll demand a rational explanation, and every time I don't hear one, he gets the trout. If it's a singing trout, I'll pay money for that. <laughs> I, I would, <laughs> hey, I just said a trout. I was not um, specific on the type, so a singing trout is acceptable in this scenario. The topic coverage on this thread is pretty incredible, actually. The title is 18 months later. How is Civ 6? And of course, that already feels like a ton of weights just on the thread title. By King of Spades, who said he got burned with Civ 5, and so was asking for opinions on Civ 6 as it's been a year and a half, roughly since release. And uh, at least the first page is pretty well on topic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he asked the question, is it a great finished product or are we going down the patchwork fix what's broken road man great and finished yeah, product definitely the latter yeah civ 6 is almost kind of the opposite of what civ 5 was where when civ 5 first launched it was kind of crap but the expansions and even just the post-release support made it so much better like even just like eight months after civ 5 came out like it was a totally different game and a much better game whereas with civ 6 i feel like the initial release was really strong but since then, it's kind of petered out a lot. I mean, that's my feeling anyway. I, I still stand by the first line in my first response to this thread. Beta UI, if I'm charitable. Hidden roles and still questionable interactions between mechanics for winning versus diplomacy. These things are still plaguing Civ 6, just as they were on release. Definitely better than Civ 5 on multiplayer when it comes to release, because mm-hmm. Civ 5, I would say Thrax is falsely advertised multiplayer for Civ 5 on release. That was disgusting. That, that was not a functional feature of the product at all. And that's not true for Civ 6. You can get through uh, multiplayer games decently. We're a Civilization Six now, as was said, definitely head of Civilization Five. Whether we're talking single player or multiplayer, for that matter, I felt like with Civilization Five, not only were there issues in terms of the implementation, but also some of the mechanics as well. In terms of like what was there, what was not there, what you could do, what you can't do. Uh, why is this this way? I'm looking at you, initial culture victory condition in Civilization Five, as an example. <laughs> it was man, we need expansions and patches in order to flesh out the game, plus fix what is already in the game. Whereas in the case of Civilization VI, there are lots of really interesting things, and they're interesting things and fun things that you can do, and they can work most of the time, but trying to actually do them to go back to the user interface is the big, big obstacle. It's you can have 
this incredible wealth of knowledge as an individual. And if you can't communicate it, if you can't make that accessible to someone, then that's not good to anybody else. And I feel like Civilization VI is that way in a lot of respects. It can do a lot of really interesting things, and a lot of things have been realized, and the support that Firaxis and 2K have given since launch continues to improve it, but what it is that we should be able to do within a reasonable amount of time and consistently, as well as knowing what this is going to do before we do it, because the game tells us the values of certain things, that's what it is missing. Is it as far along as, say, Civilization Four was after 18 months in terms of support, etc.? I think it's just as good as Civilization Four was, even though some of Civilization Four mechanics definitely argue were either better in terms of the implementation, or at least you knew more how to play the game 18 months in because there wasn't so much hidden. But this person was really burned out by Civilization Five, and... I think, especially since that they've been a fan of Civilization since Civilization 2, I think at this point, Civilization 6 is worth a try. Although, I would recommend maybe finding someone that you know who already has a copy of the game, uh, or they could, you know, share the game with you over their Steam account, because I don't think there is a Civilization 6 demo that you can try. I think they've had one or two of the free weekend things. Yeah, watch for one of those. I think I think having a demo so that you could access that at any time would be better than a free weekend thing. I miss playable game demos so much. I know. Ugh. If you were disappointed by Civilization V, and understandably, I don't think at this point you would be disappointed with Civilization VI, let alone 18 months ago be disappointed with Civilization VI, because it was already ahead of Civ V, and already that much more so. Yeah, I really like a lot of the large-scale, big-picture design philosophies that are in Civilization VI. It's just a lot of the details of the actual implementation and execution that I have a lot of complaints with. Whereas with Civ V, there were a lot of the large-scale design philosophies that I thought were steps backwards, especially in the vanilla release. Like, just completely cutting out a lot of the trade mechanics and just completely cutting out espionage. And I don't know if those were part of the design or if that was just time constraints that they couldn't implement those features. But I, I do want to say that I think that Civ Five improved a lot more in its first you know year or two than Civ Six has. But Civ Six started out, I think, at a much higher level. So there's not as much room for improvement for Civ Six as there was for Civ Five, at least not for obvious improvement. But a lot of little details with Civ 6 that really do need some work. And a lot of them were very similar to issues that were in Civ 5. So if there were nitpicky things that you hated in Civ 5, a lot of the mechanics of Civ 5 were carried over almost verbatim into Civ 6. So a lot of those nitpicks might still be relevant. And in fact, you know, I actually think that Civ 5 handled trade route and great works and stuff like that actually a little bit better than Civ 6 does. I think those features actually kind of regressed a little bit, but it's, it's kind of difficult to say. In both cases, I think we're going to have to wait until the third expansion comes out, because I thought Brave New World was fantastic. Wait, do you mean second expansion? Yeah, what did I say? Third expansion? Third, yes. You said third, yeah. <laughs> I oh, wasn't aware yeah. of the second one. But... Still, still waiting for the third Civ Five expansion, man. <laughs> it sounds like the person who posted this post did play both the Civ Five expansions, so I'm actually surprised that they still had that opinion with Brave New World, but... I didn't uh, like the expansion lockdown in Civ 5. Otherwise, I didn't mind the Brave New World era time. Except for it was still a regression of UI from Civ 4. Oh, yeah. But aside from that, like, most of the implementation of Civ 5 was pretty good by the end of it. Yeah, I agree. King of Spades comment that, with regards to Civilization 5, that each one of its patches fixed what was broken instead of improving what was already good. 
quote unquote. Well, I think a patch should be doing both of those things, unless you're talking about a hot fix, in which case a hot fix is a bug fix that needs to happen yesterday already. <laughs> we need to get it out there. I think that the patches that have been released so far for Civilization VI, setting aside the expansion pack and questions about downloadable content, lol, 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 we'll get to that shortly, <laughs> that the game is in a much, much better state. That there were lessons learned from Civilization V, that the community was listened to initially, the community is still being listened to, and that when patches come out for Civilization VI, it's not just, oh, good, this bug has been fixed, away we go. It's, oh, they've added this, or they've tweaked this, or they've removed that, or they've clarified this. There needs to be a lot more of that, especially when it comes to the user interface, has been discussed already on this show and in previous shows. But if for some reason, if for some reason, Civilization VI rise and fall was it, that the spring patch is, okay, the game is done, walk away, blah, 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 now, I would be just as happy, if not, in fact, slightly happier with it than Civilization V Brave New World. Yeah. So I think that bodes well for the future still to come in the game. I don't know about Brave New World. I would say definitely Gods and Kings. I still kind of I feel like Civ Five Brave New World is a better overall package than Civ Six Rise and Fall, but I think it's kind of close. I think it's definitely at a better position now than Civ Five was at with Gods and Kings. And it's in a better position than Civilization Three ever hoped it could be. What? Oh, we were talking about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a third entry. I don't seem to crawl that. Griffin69 started a thing over with Sympanetics asking about, more like stating the DLC business model is hurting 2K and Firaxis. Because he's uh, pointing out about the amount of reviews on Steam only concerning the DLC prices, overwhelmingly negative and probably bringing down its score a little bit. There's still people who are coming in later and buying it that didn't get a chance to do Deluxe Edition and like, wait, I have to pay all this extra money because there's no upgrade to Deluxe. You have to sit there and buy all the DLC separately. And there's no, like, deluxe upgrade. Like you see with other games, like, they'll have an X edition and a Y edition, and you can still, after the game's out, buy that edition in digital form, you know, an upgrade package if you want. But there's none of that. I mean, he says himself he bought all of the Civ Five DLC and expansions as soon as they were released, and he thinks that the current ones are just too expensive. That this, you know, that he, I guess he feels like he's getting gouged a bit with the new model. Well, I guess two, well, a few immediate responses come to mind. Number one... You can take the downloadable content, or you can leave it. You don't have to have it in order to continue to play the game, or play the game from the beginning. I don't think it's required, as has been suggested, that there be kind of an upgrade path for Digital Deluxe. But at the same time, I don't feel that anybody would have been caught off guard, that there wouldn't be such a thing, or that, hey, if I had known about this, then I would have bought the Digital Deluxe version because the DLC was so expensive. It was set up front that the reason that you're paying this much more, and right now, is for downloadable content that was still to come. And some people also complained, well, why would I agree to that when I don't know what that downloadable content is? And hey, I totally get some of the price points in the downloadable content, especially with Civilization V, where this adds a whole new civilization, whereas this only adds a few maps. And depending upon what you value, I understand getting into questions with regards to that. But it was kind of one of those things where <laughs> it's just like waiting for the game to go on sale, right? Yeah. Your advantage is that you got to play it before anybody else. And the downloadable content meant that you're paying for it up front so you don't have to pay as much later on when it is released. 
or you don't have to wait until the downloadable content is released and then for it to go on sale to then get a comparable amount which then also means that you get to play the downloadable content sooner without having to wait to purchase it or without having to wait for it to go on sale which gives you more time to play it as well if they're following a similar model with Civilization 6 that they did with Civilization 5 and they are with regards to downloadable content they're a business so it must be working well for them overall that the bean counters have decided that we're gaining more customers than we are losing. So that combined with the fact that as a consumer, inform yourself about what it's going to cost, not only in terms of money, but also in terms of time played, then I think you find that 2K and Firaxis have given you enough information about their intentions with regard to the downloadable content model to have made an informed decision now and even presently. New downloadable content comes out. It's $5. Mm, that's kind of expensive for a couple of new sieves. But a Steam sale is probably just around the corner at some time this season. So is it worth the extra $3 to play this downloadable content for three more months or not? That's a decision that you have to make as a consumer, and 2K and Firaxis have given you that choice. So to me, that's on you, not on 2K and Firaxis. There are a lot of things we can blame 2K and Firaxis for when it comes to civilization. But the downloadable content and the marketing and the costing, I don't think that's one of them. And the very first response right after him was somebody that managed to get the base game for 12 Humble Bundle with Australia and something else, and then a 64% discount on the rest of them, all Humble Bundle, and then got touched for whatever reason, got a 10% out of getting Rise and Fall. So if you don't have to play it absolutely right now and you're willing to wait like a month or two, they usually do go on sale. And if it's just for 10% or something, and Base Civ 6 showing up in Hundle Bundle this fast, was you know, that was amazing. I do have one little thing, though, to point out about what Dan just said, which is the idea of the expansions being take it or leave it. There are some valid criticisms of there being a little bit of kind of a pay-to-win element to some of the expansions. Like some of the DLC civs, you know, I'm looking at maybe Australia and, you know, maybe oh, Nubia yeah. are considerably stronger than the vanilla civs. And if you're playing Civ 6 competitively and you're trying to play on a budget and aren't buying those because of the cost, then you are kind of at a little bit of a competitive disadvantage if you are playing against somebody who did have the money to splurge on Australia or Nubia or one of the other very powerful expansion civs. But there's a little bit of a level playing field with regards to that. You'd be able to see, is downloadable content enabled? Yes or no? If we're talking competitive PvP, that is a problem. Having access to things like Persia, Nubia, and Australia, it, you're going to have to talk people out of using it. And good luck doing that consistently. Right. I paid 5 it, or $6 for this. I'm going to use it. For it. <laughs> yeah, I paid for it. I'm going to use it. That's why I paid for it. This is one area where Firaxis is definitely weaker than Paradox. Because with Paradox... The host's DLC is what counts, and anybody who is in that game has access to the same DLC as the host for that game. You just have whoever has the most DLC host, and everyone has access to the same stuff. You don't have to worry about, oh, this person has access to a Civ, I don't, or I'm going to be restrained from using my stuff. Like, none of that's an issue there. And it's a superior model. And I don't want to say that these civs are like impossible to contend with, because certainly good play is even going to beat a superior higher tier sieve so some good vanilla sieves too but yeah it's still an issue right but i i just wanted to say that because you know when dan said the dlc or take it or leave it i was kind of like thinking i don't know about that because there are some of them that you kind of don't want to leave them (laughs) if you want to stay competitive and for that reason i think an argument can be made that in order to be competitive because it's that much better than say a vanilla sieve 
is that really right that then you, you end up with a bit of it more? Not necessarily a play to win, but a play for that particular competitive advantage, irrespective of how good of a player you are, that more often than not, you're going to be in a better position by playing the civilization, which of course leads to a lot of leagues saying, guess what, Civ, you can't play, regardless of whether it's DLC or vanilla or whatever. And then I guess in that case, if you are a competitive person and you've decided you want to play with competitive multiplayer, then yes, it might be, yeah, well, I feel like I need to purchase this downloadable content. Then, although it's not ideal at that point, you still have choice of, obviously, initially, whether or not you bought the digital deluxe or not, but then you also have the choice of when to go ahead and purchase that particular downloadable content. It sounds to me like you stepped firmly into pay to win there, though, when you're just going through that. What a win! <laughs> just buy this handy DLC! Yeah, you don't want to be at a small disadvantage. You can just decide when you buy this. It's, yeah, it's the, your it's option. Just, no, that, that's, just that is clarify. definitely, definitely pay to win. Just to clarify for Dan, pay to win does not mean that you pay $5 and you automatically win the game. It's you pay $5 and you get a competitive advantage that is more likely to help you win the game. So, yeah, what, what you described is pay to win. I wasn't suggesting a pay to win model. It's not on par with other games. There are other games that have much, much, much worse pay to win models. Like I, I'm just saying that. Two. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Civ Six is I don't think is terrible in that regard because there's still a lot of variation with regard to starting map conditions and availability of resources and stuff like that. Where you know, yeah, maybe I have Australia, but I've got a crappy tundra start. I might not be as successful as another player who's got a better start. You know, and with a got- lower tier Civ. So yeah, Civ Six is Aztec. definitely definitely not the worst in this regard, and I don't think it's like a deal breaker. And I'm not going to like rake for access through the coals, but I did just want to point out that there are legitimate concerns with regard to the the power disparity between vanilla and DLC sieves. And I'm not disputing that there's a power issue between the DLC and the vanilla sieves, and that it's not an issue, and it wouldn't be an issue for something in competitive play. And we saw that in Civilization Five. Probably even more so, even if it was just because there was more downloadable content that fit that particular category. Yeah. So, yeah, I wasn't trying to say that the issues that were brought up in this thread, that they were all absolutely, nope, it's wrong, the DLC is perfect or anything like that. And I think it's worth pointing out where, in fact, there is an issue. But some people seem to take, say, that issue and then apply it to all downloadable content, let alone some people try to then take that in the thread and then use this as a basis to describe the entire video game industry and it's like whoa 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 we were yeah. just talking about Firaxis and Civ here we know other companies EA have really bad models about this yeah right EA is particularly bad they're proven liars I actually yeah. just like EA if EA tried to sell me a deluxe edition type thing like Firaxis did I'd be like yeah no right and to pull a mantra from the Dark Souls community if you're getting stomped by Australia get good <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and i think just even what i know in passing if this was a podcast about xcom and we were talking about fraxis and dlc then maybe this conversation would probably also have another different track as well so there are other elements to consider here but if we're just talking about sif what's the dlc for xcom where my 99 percent hits don't miss (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is it's up to people if people Uh, thought the dlc was overpriced the DLC wouldn't sell, but then we're all buying it. And there's maybe 10% of the people who are the Civ players are going, oh, that's too expensive. But that's not enough of people to convince them not to price it there or to do a different model, yeah. as long a as they're still making a profit. A I just want them to get away from the pay to win. That's it. Like, as long as they get away from that, the market's going to determine the price they can get away with. I don't like it, but that's reality. 
Yeah, I do want to say that getting new sieves and new leaders is a heck of a lot better than paying $3 or $5 or whatever for some crappy map packs that I'm never going to use. So, <laughs> And fortunately, there's no downloadable content that is adding mechanics or improving mechanics or anything right. like that. Yeah, yeah you, right you now they're keeping the big mechanical changes to actual full expansions. If we get into a point where they're putting those changes into DLCs, that's going to be really shifty. Yeah, they've done a, they have a the couple... manpower to do that. Like, it's it's non-trivial to avoid breaking the game that way. Yeah. And if you yeah. have people interacting with and without DLC, like, you would either necessarily have to take on Paradox's DLC model, or you would have to, like, I don't know. Like, you can't have two ways of the same mechanic in the same game functioning differently. You, you need a way, because uh, otherwise you're going to split the community. Yeah, they definitely should not be selling game mechanics as ex- DLC. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, they already divide the, cu- the civilization community between single player and multiplayer. How many more divisions do we need? Yeah. We need things that bring us together, not tear us apart. I tell you what, that's my platform. Oh, wait, I'm not running for office. Uh, it does get ugly, though, Dan. Like, if you have multi-versions of games, you really do have a split community in terms of who can play with who, and it gets problematic fast. Yeah. They definitely don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Right. The good news is multiplayer, we can all play together despite what we have or haven't purchased. The game oh. works it out now for us. Instead of being, oops, you didn't load, download that one DLC that everybody else has. Screw you. Well, well except cross-platform multiplayer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, ex- <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, except for cross-platform, but yeah, there's a history of this series in cross-platform, so. <laughs> right. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121-288-7659. That's 44121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Speaking of polished... (laughs) Speaking of DLC? (laughs) I said nobody ever until this show. Until this particular... Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but hey, if no one has said that until this podcast, I think that will help us in Google search results because we'll be the only result. Sweet. Thanks for the search engine optimization, Mackie. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> this has been Polycast episode 307 with Dan Q. Save your economy by buying local, sustainable, organic, gluten-free tire irons. <laughs> My Kahlua. Uh, can I take the tire iron to Dan now? Me and team. My DLC model is just like my expansion model. Perfect for me. And Jason Great. Now with plus 100% more pay-to-win tire irons. Ooh. And myself, Mike W. That's right. They will pay and I will win. <laughs> the tire iron dictates <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to have tire iron in the title of this episode. I just, I just feel <laughs> yeah, fired. At this point. <laughs> what have I done? 
Dan, at some point I'm going to have to give you my phone number so in case I ever do sleep in or something like that and you need to call to wake me up. Yeah, even now, even just send it to me as a direct Skype instant message or something. I'll document it while we're thinking of it. Alright, let me see if I can figure out how to do that while all this stuff's open. Oh gosh, I thought you were going to say, I'll see if I can figure out what my phone number is. Just a sec. <laughs> what, Dan? I don't seem to have this problem, but okay. Alright. I mean... I think you meant an eye twitches. No, 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 I did not. I, I'm just, no? you know... Okay, I'm, okay. that's, I'm that's, that's a you thing. Fuck her up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it when people try to tell me that the UI is not important. I'm like, well, try to play with no UI at all. Go ahead, <laughs> try it. Give that one a go. They should fix all the bugs in the game before they add any more content. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's not gonna happen. <laughs> Dan can insert that thing from the actual movie here, because I'm not going to try to sing that. (laughs) (laughs) Translation from Mackie. Dan, you still don't do enough around here. Can you get this clip? (laughs) Yeah, could you? (laughs) Hey, she's asking you to sing. How often does that happen? (laughs) I can ask him to sing. It's a clip from the movie, bit. not sing. Record date May 5th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.